Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm looking forward to sharing the Word with a fabulous theme uh, under construction, foundational truths for Christian life. Who are we? And that's what we want to focus on this morning, one of the basic truths as we build our lives for the Lord. Would you go with me to a message that the Lord used in constructing His people and how they ought to think and how they ought to influence the world that they came in contact with? After all, He was building a people, and He wanted their lives then to make a significant impact. Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 5, 6, 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, as you know, Sermon on the Mount, my favorite or my life verse comes out of this passage. And part of the themes that you're dealing with in the summer here are passages that have impacted the speakers and became foundational truths as they constructed their lives. This is for me, that passage, Matthew chapter 5. Didn't become a believer until I was 21 years old. My wife and I had never heard the gospel. Then we got saved out of a Roman Catholic background and grew in the Lord. And I could never get away from this passage of Scripture that has meant much to my life. It was years ago that A.W. Tozier, in one of his classic pieces, this man who had written much about believer and the knowledge of God and focusing on God, actually wrote something about you and about me. You see, we are a paradox. Uh, almost a life in contradiction. We are aliens, pilgrims, citizens of another place, and yet we dwell here. In our life, we are countercultural, and yet in the culture. And how do you do all that? Tozier summarized it. And it, by the way, it's not something for 2007. It's always been this way. And years and years ago, Tozier captured it with this paragraph. He says, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. By the way, let me, what is he talking about, being an odd ball? In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, about verse 13, Paul was asked the question dealing with why do you live the way you do? Why do you build your life the way you do? And he answers it through that chapter. By the time he comes to verse 13, he says, if we be beside ourselves, it is for your cause. It's an interesting expression to be beside yourself. Uh, At one point in Jesus' ministry as he was preaching in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his own fleshly brothers and sisters came to him as he's speaking in a house and and they heard him talking now as he went public with this ministry for the first time that they said he is beside himself. Literally, that expression means to take your mind out and to set it alongside of you. You and I would use the expression, you are out of your mind. But in the Bible times, they said he's beside himself, okay? And so they appear to be Christ, Paul, others. The way they constructed their lives, they appeared to be what? Say it. Out of their or beside themselves. Okay? A real Christian, then Tozer says, is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen, talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have 
have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. Anybody who fits that description must be what? Out of their minds. You'd think so. See, the whole Christian life is a paradox in a sense as we build our lives for the Lord. But the Lord uses that paradox. In Matthew chapter 5, he gathers the people together in one of his, I would call it, most famous recorded sermons that we have, the Sermon on the Mount. He opened his mouth and he taught them. And before we get to our passage, which begins in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, those four verses is what I want to focus on this morning. Even before he gets there, he starts out with these blessings or the blessed or the supreme blessing that you and I know as the what? Beatitudes. And the first of those talks about how you and I, he talks about enter this life, enter the kingdom. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to take just a couple of moments even to to lay the background to what he'll develop in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 by pointing out something here. He starts out with these beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I remember years ago when I was at Dallas Seminary. By the way, did you catch Jason? We were talking about this before. He was, he was talking about it. He says, how long have you been in ministry? It's about 30 years. And I'm going, no, not quite. It's 28. Just say 28. And he said, eh, that's about 30. He's, he's really on this three decades kick, all right? And, uh, and, and it makes me, f- and, and when you get my age now in your mid-50s, you're doing everything you can to deny old, all right? Except I have grandkids, and so I'm real proud of that, and I would like to talk about them, and I could do that all day. But when it comes to aging, I want to deny all those things. But now it seems like years ago. It wasn't that long ago. I was in Dallas, Texas, going to school. And while we lived in Dallas and lived up on the north end of of, uh, Dallas, up towards the Plano area, I used to have to drive down Gaston Avenue every day. And and I remember coming and um, driving to an intersection, and I would see... People. There were 27,000 street people living in Dallas when I was there. And oftentimes I would see people hold these placards. You ever see these? Will work for food. And they would hold that up. They, would, they, they didn't have anything. They were street people. I remember a mother with her three children. Will work for food. And that was to signify we don't have anything, but we will work and earn it, what we can for the day. The, the term that we would use in the original language in the Greek, if we were to talk about that, would be a panace, panace, panace. That's how you would say poor, okay? And that would be the Greek term that you would use to describe somebody like that. There's another Greek word to talk about poor. It's not the word panace. Jesus uses a different word in this passage. It's the word tokas, spelled P-T-O-K-A-S. Tokas. Can you say that with me? Tokas. And a whole group of tokases, Greek doesn't say it that way, would be tokoi. Say that. Tokoi. You and I, as we sit here, are not penese. We'll work for food. Do you know what a tokas is? A tokas is so poor, he has absolutely nothing. Do you remember the beggar? In Jesus' day, Luke 16, named Lazarus, who sat at the, as the food fell, he would sit, a, a tokas would sit on the floor like this, and they would hold up, and they would go, alms, alms for the poor. You understand what I'm saying? They could not work for food. 
They did not have the energy, the wherewithal. They had nothing. So everything they had was a handout. Do you understand what I'm saying? They were so destitute that they were reduced to what? Begging. And unless someone provided for them, they would die. And Lazarus did at the end of the day. They were what? Tokoi. That's the word that the Lord uses here. Blessed are the what? Absolute, destitute, impoverished beggars. Because you and I cannot work, cannot earn, can do nothing. We can't, we'll work for our salvation. There's no sign like that. You and I are what? Spiritually bankrupt beggars. Make sense? That's who we are. And Jesus says, those are the only ones. Imagine this Jewish audience. We're sons of Abraham. You're absolute destitute bankers. Those are the only ones who will ever see heaven. By the way, sometimes we forget that. Remember this prayer. Our Father who art, say it with me, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Say it. Give us this day our... We should never forget that. Church of Laodicea once forgot that. Behold, they stand at the door and knock. And that church had forgotten the fact that they were, I wish you were hot and cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will what? Spew out of my mouth. Because you think that you are rich and increased in much goods and have need of nothing, but I say of you, try of me and learn that you are wretched and miserable and tokoi. Even after we've been saved for years. That's an expression I sometimes use in my life. As I think about under construction and foundational truths, sometimes I wonder if I've been saved too long. And I forget what I was. And he goes on and he talks. And in the next few moments, here's where the paradox. And you think, if I'm a beggar, an absolute destitute beggar, what possible, what value am I? Wouldn't you feel that way? As he moves through the Beatitudes, talking about their identity, he starts to talk in verses 13, 14, and 15. He changes and doesn't focus so much on identity as much as now influence. Okay? And he changes now to the impact they can make in this world. You and you only are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its saltiness or savor, wherewith shall it be made salty? It is not good then, thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. He'll go on and talk also. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill. Cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick. That it may give light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we look in this passage of Scripture. The life you and I live is for a purpose. It is to impact this world that you and I come in contact with. And he uses 
two illustrations, two metaphors. The first, and let's look at that, the illustrations of our influence. If you'll follow along in our, the Word of God, he's going to talk about salt, and then he's going to talk about being light. And I don't know if we'll have time to get through all of that, but let's at least begin working our way through this passage of Scripture in the time that we have this morning. As he talks about being salt, he's going to start, well, as you and I look in this passage of Scripture, and we've just come out of the fact that you and I are destitute beggars, Here comes the paradox. To you and to me in our society, when you hear someone talking about, especially if you have any health problems, they say you have to cut back on the what? Salt. It can be harmful for you. And you mentioned that we're the salt of the earth. For you and me, it's a, oh, at eight in the morning, especially, or nine in the morning, it's a big salt. You know, what doesn't mean much to us. But if we go back 2,000 years and just put us in this context for a moment, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was focusing on the powerful characterization of God's people. And he was characterizing them and talking about how important or their primacy in the Greek culture at that time, they would call salt theon, a divine substance, word theology, theon. To the, in the the Jewish culture, even to this day in the Arab culture, when two people get together and they, there's a marriage or they buy a home, they will, in custom, they will, one party will stand here, the other party will stand here, they will face each other and they will each hold salt and they'll throw salt on the ground and they'll say there is salt between us. It's a mixed covenant and it can't be broken. In Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13, God says, To Moses, when you bring an offering, every offering that you bring to the altar of meat, have it seasoned with 2 Chronicles 13.5. To Solomon, God is saying, I made a covenant with your father David, and I sealed it with a covenant of salt. That's how important salt was in that economy. In the Roman culture, the Latin word is sale, saline substance. Sale is the word for salt. By the way, if you take olives or you take, and you can eat dandelions, and you can take greens like that, and oftentimes they're bitter to the taste. You can't even eat an olive if you just were to pick it. It has to be soaked in a brine salt substance. But those greens, when they were fixed to be edible, have a name from Sally called salad. All right? They used to pay Roman soldiers, not often with coinage. They would pay them with barterable substances like salt. So if a man did not work, they said he is not worth his salt. See? salary. All that to say, Jesus is using a metaphor, a word picture to say this. In his day, the moment he said, you are the salt of the earth, they knew that he was now taking them from being, what's that Greek word? Tokoi, to being the most valuable commodity available. 
On the one hand, to enter the kingdom, you have to realize amatokas. To influence and enlarge God's kingdom, you are my gold, my platinum, my diamond, the most valuable substance that he can build on this earth with. Does it make sense? We are the most, if he's going to construct, he's going to use us as the most valuable instrument and construction material available. You are the salt of the earth. Real quickly, as we look in this passage then, the powerful characterization, notice salt. We talk about not only its value, but its virtue. As we talk about, what, so, so what do we do? I mean, what, what impact do we make as salt? And, and, and when you think about, and, and if you were to ask, and I wrote them down here because I did not know how much time we would have, what is salt used for? Well, the most obvious usage of salt is what? Flavoring food. This morning I was, and we're staying in a hotel, and you went out, you know, for one of those breakfasts that they lay out there, and, and I went out there and looking around, and, well, what do I want to eat? And they have these boiled eggs. They have boiled eggs. And so I, you know, and they're all peeled and everything. Oh, I'll have one of those eggs. And I took one of those and ate, but then I go, well, that thing was probably peeled a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago. But, but, it, but, but it was okay. It's just a little cardboardy and, and rubbery and, you know, and... Maybe they gave me one of the artificial ones. I don't know, but I thought, i got to do something to this egg. And you know what? What do you do to the egg? Salt it. I made it, made it whiter, and I turned that baby as black as I could, all right? Salt and pepper. Didn't taste it, all right? But, but I knew I was eating something, but, but, but it's salty. I'm, I'm a, I like salt. It adds. Do you ever eat oatmeal without adding salt to the water? Well, Lucy will send me out sometime, get some crackers, bring them back, or put these potato chips. And I've made the mistake of buying one of those, and you put them in your mouth, and they have no salt on them. And when no one's looking, well, I'm not eating it anymore, all right? It's, you can't eat the stuff. Salt lends flavor. A commentator, not a great theologian, but a fabulous historian as a commentator by the name of William Barclay said this about salt. He said, The obvious and greatest quality of salt is that salt lends flavor to things. Food without salt is a sadly insipid thing. Christianity lends flavor to life. The tragedy is that so often people have connected Christianity with precisely the opposite. They have connected Christianity with that which takes the flavor out of life. And he goes on to say, Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, quote, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Robert Louis Stevenson, the great essayist, once wrote in his diary on a Sunday after returning from church. He said this, quote, I have been to church today, and surprisingly, I am not depressed. It's an interesting quote. Barclay writes, men and women need to discover the lost radiance of the Christian faith. In a worried world, the Christian should be the only man or woman who remains serene. In a depressed world, the Christian should be the man or woman who remains full of the joy of life. There should be a sheer sparkle about the Christian life. And yet too often the Christian dresses like a mourner at a funeral, talks like a specter at a feast. Wherever he is, wherever she is, if they are the salt of the earth. The Christian ought to be the diffuser of joy. Do you like that? 
We said the word for God, the Greek word for God is what? Theos, theology, the study of God. Theos. That E-O, theos, is a diphthong that can be pronounced in Greek language, ooh. So you could say thus, thusology, okay, study of God. When you come into this room, we what? Enter it. When we go out, we, what's the sign say? Exit. E-X, out. E-N, to enter, to be in. They used to take Christians in the early centuries, march them to their deaths, whether it be in an arena, gladiatorial games, whether they became fodder for a lion, or whether they put a Paul and a Silas in a prison. In the middle of the night, they'd be singing songs. They acted as if they were what? What? Beside themselves, out of their mind. The great paradox that Tozer wrote about. They acted as if there was a God in them. What did I say the word for in in Greek is? In. The word for God? Thus. They acted enthusiastic. As if there was a God living in them. The word that ought to describe you and me is not tokoi, is what? Enthusiastic for Jesus Christ. Because to him we are valuable. Most valuable substance on this earth is the gold, the silver. Now you won't get to heaven thinking I'm valuable. You have to realize what we sang this morning. We are sinners begging, saved by grace. But once he is living in us, we become an additive. We become a curative. Salts of magnesia, Epsom salts. We heal. We stimulate healing. Wherever we live, wherever we work, we become and help take care of and rid infection simply by pointing out in people's lives and others the cure for their life is Christ. We are a preservative. We often depend on moral action groups. It's you and me that are the ones to uphold righteousness. We preserve. And I'll run out of time unless I move quickly. I needed some more tivs here, so I made one up. A thirstative, okay? That works as a word, doesn't it? How many of you have had a Virginia ham? Remember Virginia ham? How many of you had a real Virginia ham? I'll use Texas one more time, living in Texas. I have a friend who is also an engineer. I'd graduated as a chemical engineer before I ever was called, saved, and entered the ministry. And um, I was down in Texas, and I met a friend. His name is Butch, and he, is a, he was also an engineer. So we, our families, same age kids, everything, we struck up a friendship. And Butch's dad had been a pastor back in Tennessee, and he was, and, and, but his dad had gone home. But he had relatives back there. So one of the Christmases, he said, hey, Dave, when uh, we go back, I'm going to bring you a Virginia ham. 
And so they brought back a Virginia ham that had been hanging in a barn 11 years. Okay. And they brought it back, and it was in this white, shriveled up cheesecloth. And we took a steel brush, brushed all the green and gray stuff off of it. And then what you do is you take a crock, a, a, a crock, and we heated it up with boiling water, then put the ham in there and let it boil for three hours. Turn the stove off, wrap the quilt around it, and let it sit in there for 24 hours, just simmering, cooling down for 24 hours. We took the Virginia ham out and sliced it in about one-half-inch slices. My wife made raw fried potatoes, dippy eggs. Pennsylvania, we call them dippy. You understand immediately what that is, right? We ate Virginia ham, dippy eggs, raw fried potatoes, Texas toast. It was awesome, all right? And I haven't really had breakfast yet this morning, but it was, I'm envisioning this thing again. It was awesome. One hour after I ate that Virginia ham, you could have hitched my lips up to a fire hydrant. I mean, I'm telling you, it's like, what happened? I mean, we couldn't even speak. And it's like, where did all the fluids in my body? I'm dying. Okay. I mean, I was the thirsty. I had never been that thirsty in my life. It's like all my organs through osmosis. Something's going on here. And, and what, what is this? And it's the revenge of the ham. I don't know. But it was, it was, it was. But I love, you know what? You and I do not quench anybody's thirst. But Jesus said, I am the living water. You and I make people so thirsty for Christ. It's as if their life is parched. It's the salt of the... Do you understand? And we're a distinctive. Now, you get the impression this message could go a lot longer, and I could too. I got about five minutes. Can I just point something? What makes salt so powerful is the ability that it has, and it be used... Salt must be applied in direct contact. Getting in, being in. There is a potential catastrophe for God's people, but if salt has lost its saltiness, where will salt shall be salted? Now, as a chemist, one of the things I did realize, salt is a stable compound. Sodium chloride is stable. It does not lose its saltness as such. So what's he speaking of? There are clues through the New Testament of how they understood this through colloquialisms. For instance, in Colossians, and write down in the margin of your Bible, if you would, or on the sheet, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, let your, in speaking wisely, let your speech be seasoned with what? Salt. It was a euphemism in Jesus' day. A way of saying that if a person is wise, they are salty. And if they are unwise, they have lost their what? They've lost their salt. Lost their saltiness. So therefore, let your speech be seasoned with salt. It means to be wise. And what he's talking about here in Matthew chapter 5, if the salt has lost its saltiness or its ability. We get salt today by boring a pipe into the ground several hundred feet. 
perhaps an eight or a ten inch pipe, we will blow down water and we will bring up a slurry of water from which then is evaporated off the liquid and leaving us with pure sodium chloride. Up until just a few years ago, Salt was obtained, and men fought wars through history. One of the most fascinating books is a book written by Mark Kurlansky. was out in a New York Times bestseller three years ago, about that thick. It's called The History of Salt. Anybody here read it? You can buy it at Barnes & Noble, by the way. It's now in paperback. Anybody want to read it? I found it fascinating. My wife goes, Dave, it shows geekiness. Okay, so... <laughs> It's not one I'm carrying around in public, but it's a fabulous book, all right? And, and as you read it, but what he talks about is how salt through the ages has been a commodity people have sought, and they fought over it because it was dug up on the land masses. The Caribbean islands are some of the finest salt ponds around. That's why they became so valuable, see? But in Jesus' day, they oftentimes went down like to the salt sea. And when you dig up in a salt marsh, you often then will bring up salt, sodium chloride with potassium, too much calcium, magnesium. you understand what I'm saying? It's more like the salt we put on the roads than the salt you would eat. And oftentimes the sodium chloride will leach out and it will leave a residue. That is, that virtually is like ceramic. It's good for nothing now but for clay, walkways, or tilings. It's because there's too many impurities present. The potential catastrophe then for God's people is, number one, contamination. The possibility of then, you see, in order to be salt, not only contaminated is a potential, but salt has to be, you have to apply it. You have to take it out of the salt shaker. You have to be rubbed in. You have to be applied. It's good to be here today. It's good to be among you, and it's a thrill to be here. And it's, don't you find coming to church like this and worship on Sunday refreshing? Don't you find the songs we were singing uplifting? Isn't it good to be around God's people? And we just feel my Christianity becomes vibrant, feels whole, feels refreshed. And it's good to be around God's people. Okay? Folks, It's good to be here, but we can't do our Christianity here. He didn't leave us in the world to just be here. You and I are to be spread out, rubbed in, applied, and impacting and influencing for Jesus Christ. That's a foundational truth that we ought to build our lives on. Amen? And we ought to go out there and do our and be salty, and make people thirsty for Christ, and influence the world we come in contact with. Salt, potential catastrophe, assimilation. By the way, and I don't have time, and I wish we could, and I'm sorry, we'll have to close up shop. He's going to talk about light, and then talk about the implications of our influence. You know, you and I don't even give it second thought anymore today. And that is, we always, we use, the, we put two metaphors together, salt and light. You're salt and light. We just say it. For 2,000 years we've said we're salt and light because the great Lord of all said we're salt and light. That's like saying you're, you're, you're a penny, and we were talking about that on a golf course yesterday. It's like saying you're a penny and you're a horse. What do they have to do with each other? I mean, 
you're a car and you're a banana. I mean, it's like, what? I mean, there are two metaphors that absolutely mean nothing together. Did you ever think about that? What's salt and light? They're absolute, they don't even work. Oh, yeah, they do. In that culture, when you realize the value of salt, and you realize when you take a lichnos, a small little lamp that you could hold in the palm of your hand, a candle, and in that day of no electricity, what one little light can do. See? There has to be contact, and there has to be contrast, dark from light. It's the difference that makes the difference. We're in this world to be different in the world, but to be a Christian. People would say we are what? Beside ourselves. No, we're not. We want to show you one that's as different from dark as light, sin, and righteousness. We were on our way to hell. We're on our way to heaven. We are children of God, not sons and daughters of the devil. Isn't that good being saved? Well, then let's go out and be salt. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Would you bow with me and have a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the time in the Word of God this morning. Cause us to make people thirsty for Christ. Cause us to realize that even though we are tokoi, we are valuable to you. Help us now to radiate Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.